Good to see you this evening. Uh, well, it's not quite evening yet. Good to see you this afternoon, but uh, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, thank you for making your way out to the meeting house. Uh, it is a blessing to be anywhere. Um, in light of what the doctors thought, um, Brother Scott's good to have you with us tonight, men from Charity. Thanks for making your way up. It's an encouragement. And uh, Brother Scott was a particular help to me when uh, I got to feeling poorly. Never had any indication anything was wrong until I was in Atlanta, driving through Atlanta. I guess that's where a lot of people figure out something, <laughs> something's wrong. But anyway, um, I had to stop at a hospital. I got so dizzy that it was not safe for me to drive. And they told me they were going to keep me. I called Brother Scott and told him that I was there. He came over, sat with me about the time they told me there was something wrong in my head. That might have been why we found all the strange things happening in the hospital funny. But uh, we sat there and we laughed. I mean, we just had a good time. And thank you, brother, for coming over. Uh, they transferred me over to Emory. They knew something was not right, but they did all the tests that they could do the next day. And finally, that evening, told me that I had a brain tumor and a cyst uh, there in my right frontal lobe. They did not want me to leave. They said, we want to operate and get it out. It's critical. And I said... I'm not staying. I said, well, we're not letting you go. I said, you can't stop me. <laughs> so I said, I'm celebrating on Sunday uh, 30 years as pastor of the church there in North Carolina, and I'm going to be there for that. And uh, that, thank you, son, that chief neurological surgeon there at Emory University Hospital, he looked at me a minute. And he said, you know, my grandfather pastored a Baptist church in Iowa until he was 101 years old. He said, I know what it means to you. I can't let you drive, but you go and enjoy it and promise me you'll have it taken care of as soon as possible. I said, thank you. I'll do that. And, of course, their prognosis with what it was, uh, a glioblastoma multiform is a grade 4, which is the most aggressive type of brain cancer that there is. And the surgeon went in. I'll just take a few minutes. Uh, I met with a surgeon in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He said, I've removed these before, but there's a, a surgeon here, a younger surgeon, who he's far better than I've ever been. If you can get him to do it, uh, that would be best for you. And he said, I'll see if he's available. He said, he can do the surgery Wednesday. This is Monday. And you can meet with him tomorrow. And I did. He, um, I thought when I looked at him, he's Muslim. But... The more I talked with him, he said that he was from Pakistan, grew up in England, uh, told me everything about what he was going to do, and then asked me to, to pray for him. He knew I was uh, a pastor. I said, I'll do that. And so I took his hand. We prayed there in his office. And I got down to the end and said, in Jesus' name, and he said it with me. I thought he was no Muslim. This man, he is a Christian. So it was just good. I didn't realize he was scheduled on that Wednesday to had my surgery. He and his family, wife, five children, had already had plane tickets booked for uh, several weeks vacation in Scandinavia. And he had all of them rebooked so he could stay and do my surgery. And he did it. Uh, they told me I would be in ICU for several days and then move to a regular room. He finished the surgery 7.30 to 8 o'clock on Wednesday night, the next day, Thursday. 
2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm walking out of the hospital, going to the house, and everything went as good as it possibly could. Never had any problems. Uh, the uh, chemo and radiation, never had any side effects from that. Never lost a hair. It's never got sick. It's just amazing. The doctor said, we don't understand. I said, I can tell you how. My oncologist said, now, I know how. <laughs> he said, I know who, because I pray to God every day for all of my patients. And he said, but I still don't understand. He said, I've got you on the largest dose of chemotherapy I've ever put anyone on, and it doesn't phase you at all. I said, it's still the same answer, doctor. <laughs> it's just the same answer. And, and it is. And why does he choose to, to let some get well and to take others? Well, he's God. He can do that. Amen. And that's the only answer I have. Right. And uh, he, has, he has made it very, very easy uh, for me. Uh, he has pressed upon me the need to get certain things done that did not seem as important earlier. Maybe that's some of what he had in mind. But if you'll pray with me, um, praising the Lord for what he has done, and that he give me wisdom for uh, the road ahead, there are changes that have to be made. Uh, I will be, I was telling your pastor earlier today, I'll be at my home church three Sundays for the rest of the year. And that just doesn't work out too well for churches, for the pastor to be gone that long, though they've always been supportive. Uh, it's worked well. I've never taken a salary by choice from the church because I was gone a lot. So pray that things will work out. would have wisdom to know how to proceed. I desperately need God's wisdom for those things. And I thank you for praying. Uh, God is good. And had he called me on to heaven, he'd have been just as good. And I'm ready to go. Never bothered me at all. I had peace the whole time that whatever God did, it would be done well. And when you know him that way, it's good. It's very good. Ephesians chapter 5. Thank you for the singing. I appreciate the music here. I've enjoyed it very much. And that's the medium we're going to use to give you some Baptist history tonight. It's that of singing and music. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Father, we thank you for your word. God, it's good to be in this place today with the saints. God, we're grateful for this church. They have ministered to this preacher and many others. I ask that you would bless them many-fold. God, we pray that you would bless in the service this evening. May we hear things, learn things, remember things about our heritage that will last for the rest of our lives. God, we thank you for hearing and answering prayer. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, do give us the command to be filled with the Spirit and to 
sing the songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Of course, we want to make you aware of the difference if you're not sure what the difference is. You certainly know what a psalm is. There's an entire book in your Bible filled with psalms, 150 of them. Are they songs? Yes, they are. Were they meant to be sung by Israel? Yes, they were. And yet we understand as Bible believers they are much more than just songs. Certainly they are inspirational, but they are historical, and they are prophetical, and we know that they are doctrinal. So we learn so much from the Psalms, and that's part of the reason why we sing. It is to learn. It's not just to praise God, but it is to learn. And so a psalm will serve uh, that purpose. There have been many who have put together psalm books over the years. And of course, they are called Psalters. King James was one of those who did so. King James authorized the translation of our King James Bible. We're grateful for that. But most people do not know that while he did not participate in the translation, he was qualified to do so. As a hobby, just in his spare time, he translated all 150 of the Psalms and set them to meter and rhyme so that they could be sung. And his Psalter for a while was used as the official songbook of the Church of Scotland. And in your new hymnal, there are two songs by King James. One of them in support of Psalm 12, which is the place you turn to in your Bible in defense of the preservation of the Scriptures. So uh, we thought it would be fitting to use that psalm by King James as we were including some into the hymnal. So we understand what a psalm is. The Bible talks about psalms and hymns. We know a hymn best by understanding the Old English spelling of this word. H-Y-M-N is the Old English spelling for hymn, H-I-M. And a hymn is about him. And uh, songs of praise unto God, the Lord Jesus Christ, are hymns. A hymn will never have a refrain. It will never have a chorus. It is simply meant just to praise God. So that is a hymn. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now what is a spiritual song? A spiritual song is something that will impart doctrinal truth. And that's the purpose in it. It's so that people can learn doctrine as taught in the Bible by singing it. And that's the reason why you will always have in a spiritual song a refrain, a chorus, a repetition at the end of each verse because that doctrinal truth is, is found there. Now we talked this morning, we mentioned it briefly when talking about monuments that we have been able to place. The one there in Brooklyn, New York at the 6th Avenue Baptist Church for Robert Lowry, the Baptist preacher who wrote nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me old again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then the refrain, oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so that's a spiritual song. It has a chorus, a refrain that teaches a doctrinal truth. What's the doctrinal truth there? It concerns the blood of Christ. 
It also makes a difference between the blood as being able to cleanse from sin and the water, another fount, not being able to cleanse from sin. And so singing that, and that's the reason why it's the value in having good psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs on the radio or a CD in your home when your children are growing so that those songs become part of them. They learn doctrinal truth from them. And it lasts for the rest of their lives. If you don't believe that, if you had any opportunity to go into a nursing home, you'll see it firsthand. Sometimes you can go into a nursing home. You can talk to the residents there in preparation for a service. Some of them will try to talk to you and just mutter the whole time. Can't understand a word they're saying. They can't even pronounce their own name, even though they know it. They just can't say it. Just... They're just debilitated to that point. And yet, when you stand and start the service and you sing those old hymns, you watch those people, every one of the ones who cannot talk to you, they could not answer a question that you ask them, and they'll sing every word of that song correctly. Never miss a thing. And when you walk out, they'll mutter as you're, as you're walking out the door. They can't help it. But that's how scriptural music sticks with you all of your lives. And it's a way for you to learn, it's a way for you to praise, and it's a way for you to be encouraged. So uh, the psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, that's the three divisions of what we should be singing scripturally. And they're found, as we've mentioned here in Ephesians 5 and Colossians chapter 3. But once it comes to the singing, we think about how that's accomplished. And of course, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, songs, when you're singing, they consist of several things. Melody, harmony, and rhythm. Melody is the tune to the song. And the tune is made up by putting together notes that have a certain pitch. And we match our voices to the pitch of the note. The instrument that plays also uh, plays on that pitch according to the tune. But that's the melody. It's the part that everyone sings when they're in the shower. Uh, they're singing the lead. And a very, I mean, every once in a while you may have a weird person that will just sing their bass part. I don't know. But anyway, uh, it's melody. When you're riding down the road in your car and a song comes to your mind, that's what you're going to sing more often than not. It's the melody of the song. And that would be the lead. Sometimes in a congregational setting, it is the soprano who carries the lead, although that's available for anyone to sing if they are able to comfortably reach those notes. And then there is the harmony. And harmony speaks of unity. That's all of the different voices with which God has blessed a congregation coming together to sing their parts. And of course, uh, there would be uh, the soprano and alto in a congregation. There would be uh, the, the tenor and the bass or the baritone and the bass, depending on whether it's a quartet or a congregational singing that you're talking about. But all of those voices blended together, that's unity. It's a representation of what the church should be as a whole. Each one of us have differing gifts that God has given unto us we have differing abilities, talents, and when those things are put together to serve the Lord, that's unity. 
and it's harmony as well. Uh, we are unified in what we're doing, but we're using the various things with which God has blessed us to do those things. Singing is a representation of that. Each one of you have a, a different voice uh, and a different pitch to your voice. Blending them together is a good thing. Now, is it wrong? Well, if we pull the screen down here and uh, we would project uh, a words on the screen to sing, is that a sin? No. I guess some people have a problem with it, but it is problematic in some respects because whenever that happens, at least every time that I've noticed that it happens, there's no music that goes along with it. In other words, it's just the words, which means that everyone is forced to sing the melody. Now, some songs are written that way, and it will tell you unison. Sing in unison if everyone is to sing the melody. But most songs are not written that way. Most of them have parts which bring harmony together. And while we can have unity in singing, harmony brings all of the differing voices together in a pleasing sound. And that's what you sacrifice very often whenever words of a song are just put on a screen without the music. And the hymnal, which has the music, is never touched, or very seldom is it touched. And what you're doing is you're taking harmony away from a congregation. And you're forcing them to be in unison on everything. And that's unrealistic. We very seldom get in unison about anything in, in our lives. But when it's necessary, we do. But when it's not, we want to be pleasing. And it is pleasing unto the Lord, Psalm 133, when brethren dwell together in unity. And so those parts of the song, they do matter. You've got the rhythm, that's the tempo, it's ordered by the tune, and that's another thing. Music is an orderly thing. And the Bible does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in the church let all things be done decently and in order. The difference between modern music and not everything that's modern is bad. And old music, and not everything that's old is good. But the basic difference between them is the order in the music. The old is generally ordered according to the rules of music, and the new seldom is. And it helps to understand music to be able to hear that and observe it. But that does make a difference. Because you have to have order in what you're singing and the way you're singing. And it would be a horrible thing to sing a wonderful song in a disorderly fashion. It would be a horrible thing to sing a great spiritual song filled with doctrinal truth in a way that goes against the laws of music. It's just not proper. And so music is ordered from the melody, the harmony, the rhythm, which dictates the tempo, and of course, meter. Here's the way you can tell whether a song is ordered correctly, whether it is written the way it should be. It's meter. And you can look in your hymnal, and just underneath the title in each of the songs, there's going to be the meter given to you. Meter is important. You say, Brother Jeff, what in the world is meter? Meter is simply the syllable count of the song. That's all it is. And that is important because you're singing 
the same thing repetitively each time. For instance, Amazing Grace. Here it is. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Eight. That saved a wretch like me. Six. I once was lost, but now am found. Eight. Was blind, but now I see. Six. It's eight, six, eight, six. That's what's known as common meter. And uh, that is an orderly song. And people write today and they put no thought in the meter because they don't know anything about it. They've never been taught about it. And you can quickly realize it. That's the reason why all modern music will be forgotten. Because it cannot, it has not been written in a way that it can be remembered. And meter makes a difference. The old songbooks in Baptist churches had no music with them. You just had the words, and you had a tune, and you had the meter. And once the, the saints learned a particular tune of a certain meter, they could sing any song that was written in that meter to that tune. And you're going to do that with me tonight. Amazing Grace. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. But we're not going to sing it to the tune to Amazing Grace. You're going to sing it to the tune of Joy to the World. Same meter. Now I want you to help me. Don't, don't slack off. I know you know it. You know the tune, Joy to the World. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Was blind, but now I see. Was blind, was blind, but now I see. They have the same meter. And the music is ordered so that you can sing any common meter song to any common meter tune. And there are various types of meter. There's long meter, short meter, common meter, particular meter, hallelujah meter. I mean, on and on and on you go. But it, that's what orders the song so that it can be sung, so that it can be remembered, and so that it will be pleasing when it's sung in the congregation. And by the way, the great problem with the lack of congregational singing today is that people miss out on the one thing that's closest to heaven on earth. It's congregational singing. There's not going to be any preaching in heaven. There won't be any need in eternity for prayer in heaven. There won't be any need for faith in heaven. Right there he is. But the scripture tells us there is going to be singing. And if you think there's congregational singing now that's good, and every time I hear it, I love it, you just wait till all the redeemed of all of the ages join together singing, holy, 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 as you find it there in Isaiah 6, Revelation chapter 4. You have never heard anything like it, but the closest you'll get to heaven on earth is congregational singing. And that's why, in part, it should never be laid aside. So we know it's, there's an example of it. We know, as we've already said, there's an entire book of songs in your Bible. There's one book, Song of Solomon, that is a song in itself. We know that Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn when they departed that room. And Jesus was on his way to be arrested and put to death. 
singing is commanded to us as we have read in our text before us this evening. And we should not neglect it. We mentioned this morning about Benjamin Keach, the English Baptist pastor who was persecuted for his faith, a well-known author. And his book, A Breach in God's Worship Repaired, he said that congregational singing had been neglected by the Baptist and that it should be restored, repaired. And you know what happened? As we mentioned today, whenever he introduced a hymn into his church where they had not been singing hymns for years, the church split right down the middle. And of course, he persevered and won the day for all of the Baptists in England, and that also influenced the Baptists in America. Could you imagine coming to a meeting at the church and not singing? Not raising your voices together in song? Yet that was the condition of the Baptist churches in the 1600s in most of the world. And Benjamin Keach is responsible for, for changing that. God used him. And he was also a hymn writer. His son, Elias, who was the imposter there in Philadelphia, he also was a hymn writer. Many of the Baptists have left us a legacy as far as pinning psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And it will do us good to remember them. Now, it's not just the Baptists. We're going to call your attention to some of them, and you will know them in just a moment. But others who have affected our singing. We are thankful for Charles Wesley. We sang his song, And Can It Be Tonight. You heard your pastor mention that he wrote that on the day of his conversion. He thought, how could anything be better than that? Until on the one-year anniversary of his conversion, he writes, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. You want everybody to know he hadn't got over it. He's still praising the Lord for uh, his salvation. And so Charles Wesley, one of the great uh, songwriters in history, he wrote, Jesus, lover of my soul as well. Hark the herald angels sing. What a blessing all of those songs are, and doctrinal, I might add. And that's the reason why we sing what we sing. That's the criteria. Is it scriptural? Is it scriptural? It's amazing as we sit down to put together a hymnal, uh, the songs that we've been singing as we're trying to put scripture verses in the margin to uh, verify and support what's being sung, and we couldn't find any, we thought maybe we shouldn't be singing it if it's not scriptural. And so we cut out some of the favorites because they were unscriptural and included that which is scriptural. That's the first criteria for anything we do as Christians, anything we do in a Baptist church, anything that we sing, is it scriptural? That's always the criteria. And we think of an Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was not a Baptist. He was an independent, yet he is known as the father of English hymnody. God blessed him with a very unusual ability to write songs. Most of the great hymns he wrote, he penned before he was 21 years of age. He just had that ability from God. In fact, when he was a little boy, every time that his father would ask him a question or anyone would ask anything of him or he would speak, he'd also always do it in rhyme. 
And it got his father so aggravated at him, he told him one day, if you rhyme one more time, I'm going to give you a spanking. And he responded with a rhyme. His father made good on the promise. He put him over his knee and he began to, to dust his pants. And Isaac said, oh, father, if thou wouldst mercy take, I promise no more verse to make. <laughs> and his, his father had, had to stop. He said, listen, obviously you're, you've gotten this from God, so why don't you use it for his glory? And he did. He wrote hymns and some of the finest that have ever been written. Joy to the world, am I a soldier of the cross? When I survey the wondrous cross is generally considered to be the finest hymn in the English language. We credit that to Isaac Watts and give God the glory for it. So many, so many stories. As, as I sat down this evening, I heard the dear lady playing uh, the song Revive Us Again. I was reminded of the story of William McKay, uh, the rebellious young man in Scotland. He was so wicked that he left home when he was just a young man, young man, so that he could be better and more involved in sin. His mother had prayed for his conversion. She had witnessed to him, and she had told him what was necessary to be saved, and yet he refused to believe on the Lord. The last thing she did for him as he left home was to give him a copy of God's Word. She wrote his name in it, and she said, This will tell you how to be saved. And he left home with the Bible and sold it just as quickly as he could for what little he could get to aid in his rebellion. Now, he was a brilliant young man. He applied himself to learning. He even was able to enter medical school and become a doctor. And some years later, his mother's gone, she's with the Lord, but some years later as he is a doctor making his rounds in the hospital, there is a man who he described as not being far from death that was brought in. He said, I did all that I could for him, told him what the condition was, he didn't have long to live, and asked, is there anything I can do for you? He said, yes. Doctor, I have no family, but what little money I have here, I'd like for you to get to my landlady. She's been very kind to me. And the doctor said, I'll see that she gets it. He said, I was leaving the room, and the man called out with one more request. Could you have her to send the book? He said, I don't know what he was talking about, but I relayed the message, and she must have received it because the next evening on my rounds, he's reading a book. I didn't ask any questions. I knew that it wouldn't be long until he expired. And the next day, he died. And uh, Dr. McKay is there when he passes. And he tells the nurse to go through his belongings to gather them. And she did. She goes through them, and she takes the book. And she holds it up. And she says, what do we do with this? Hands it to the doctor. William McKay opened the book. It was not just any book. It was God's Word. It wasn't just any copy of God's Word. In the front of that Bible was his name. It was the very one he had sold years earlier that his mother had given him. He said all he could do was turn, leave that room with tears streaming down his face as he went to his office, closed the door behind him and sat down at his desk. And he opened that Bible and he read, heeding his mother's instruction many years earlier, that that's the place where he could find the Savior. 
and he did. He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you understand then, when he could pen the words, we praise thee, O God, for the son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. And some of the stories behind these songs, though they are not scripture, are certainly a testimony to the power of scripture and what they can do. And only God can bring about such things. Anywhere with Jesus is a song. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was written in part by Helen C. Alexander. And Helen Alexander was the wife of the famous evangelist from England, Charles Alexander. They would travel on both sides of the ocean. He would preach. And she would assist in the meetings, talking with the ladies and counseling with them. And God used them to see many souls converted. In fact, in North Carolina, near Shelby, North Carolina, in a meeting, there's a young boy who is saved as a result of the preaching of Charles Alexander. And that young man's name was David Otis Fuller. Fuller would later move with his parents to New York City. There he would become a member of the First Baptist Church. Uh, that's the church we mentioned this morning that was pastored by John Gano, friend of George Washington. But it was pastored at this time, in the early 1900s, by I.M. Haldeman, Isaac Massey Haldeman. Those of you who like to read, Haldeman is a great author and wrote many books. But Haldeman taught David Otis Fuller. Fuller became a preacher of the gospel, moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and pastored a Baptist church there, and he also began to write. He wrote, however, in defense of the King James Bible. And his two books, Which Bible and True or False, are still classics in defense of the King James Bible. It started with somebody being obedient to go and tell people about Jesus. And that's what... Helen Alexander's verse in the song, Anywhere with Jesus, has to talk about. Anywhere with Jesus, over land and sea, telling souls in darkness of salvation free, ready as he summons me to go or stay. Anywhere with Jesus, when he points the way. And a, a thrilling song to sing. Alexander, Charles Alexander died. She remarried the famous Baptist preacher from America. A.C. Dixon, M.Z.I. Clarence Dixon, who pastored some of the more well-known Baptist churches in this country and later was called to pastor Spurgeon's Tabernacle there in England. And they, too, began to travel. And uh, they would be used to see many souls saved and uh, folks helped with the Word of God. And you say, what does any of that have to do? Well, her verse, anywhere with Jesus over land and sea, Telling souls in darkness of salvation free. She meant that. She meant it. You say, well, many people do. Yeah, but it's a unique thing with her. Helen C. Alexander Dixon, the C. What does is her maiden initial stand for? Well, it stands for Cadbury. She was the chocolate heiress. She owned it all. And she left it all to go anywhere with Jesus over land and sea, telling souls in darkness of salvation free, ready as he summons me to go or stay, anywhere with Jesus when he points away. And uh, things like that mean something. It's a good testimony. Some of us don't have as much to leave.
And some of us who don't have as much are unwilling to leave what we do have. And so uh, good examples of faithfulness and a willingness to serve the Lord. Edward Moat was the Baptist preacher in Sussex, England. He was orphaned at an early age, later was apprenticed to a cabinet maker, and he learned the skills of carpentry, and then he fell under the preaching of the gospel and got saved. God called him to preach, and so he's ministering to that congregation of Baptist believers in Sussex, England, and they had no meeting house. So he took it upon himself with his skills and with his own money to build a meeting house for the people there in England. You can still visit that Baptist church in England today. And when he finished, the congregation was so moved that they said, Preacher, we'd like to give you the deed to the building. You built it. You paid for it. You might as well have the deed. He said, No, I do not want the deed. The only thing that I desire is the pulpit. And when I cease to teach and preach Jesus, put me out of that. That's the kind of man who could write, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. He is the author of the solid rock. The song which we sang, Baptist preacher, writing that song. You could go to Philadelphia and visit the first Baptist church there in Philadelphia. We, we did so this year. Uh, that's the place where Joseph Gilmore, the Baptist preacher from Rochester, New York, was the visiting preacher when he was preaching on the 23rd Psalm, and he read as far as, He leadeth me. That was not where his message was uh, to start, but he couldn't go any further. And he just preached and mused for a while from the pulpit about how God leads us. He leads us when we do not realize He's leading us. He is leading us not only in good times, but in difficult times. He is leading us through this life, and He is leading us on to heaven. He leadeth me. He finished the service that night, which was very moving, stayed in the home of the deacon of the First Baptist Church, and it was suggested that the message would make a good song. And so uh, immediately, Joseph Gilmore, the Baptist preacher, rises from uh, the table and he goes and sits down in a corner and he takes a piece of paper and a pen and he begins to write the words to that song, He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Where I go, where I be, still tis his hand that leadeth me. And uh, songs written by Baptists, a large portion of the songs that we sing written by Baptists. John Rippon was a well-known Baptist preacher in England. In fact, he pastored for over 60 years the same church that Charles Spurgeon would later pastor. He was very well known. He was also responsible for putting together a hymnal. And in that hymnal, Rippon's tune book, is the first place that was introduced the song How Firm a Foundation, which was written by his son-in-law, also a member of the Baptist Church. And how often has that song been sung to be an encouragement to the saints to rest their hope and their all on a foundation that will never be destroyed? It's the Word of God. How firm a foundation, ye saints, 
of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word, written by Baptist. Others, we mentioned some who were not Baptist. You'll know them well, however. On a trip to Olney, England, I was fascinated by what I learned. There in that place, as I'm standing at the south end of the town on the steps of a meeting house, I'm able to look across the green, and there is a museum. And it's the home of William Cooper, who was a well-known English poet, but a well-known English hymn writer. And William Cooper, for many years, was given to fits of insanity. In fact, he had tried to take his life so many times that he was placed in an asylum, given no hope of recovery. Until one day, he sat down at a table there in that insane asylum, and on the table was an open copy of God's Word. It was open to Romans chapter 3. And he said he read about the blood of Christ Amen. being shed for him and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. And instantly, his heart and his mind are made better. He still had problems, given to some depression afterwards, but he was able to leave that insane asylum. And he was able to labor there in his home in only England. And he would conspire with his best friend to put out the songbook called The Only Hymns. Who was his best friend? Well, standing there on that, the steps of that meeting house, I was able to look at a spire of another meeting house rising just on the other side of Cooper's home, which is a museum today. And that's a place where John Newton, who is the penman of amazing grace, that's the place where he labored and where he pastored and where he is buried. And you can still see the path from the meeting house going through the gate to Cooper's home. And they wore it out, going back and forth, visiting with one another and laboring together to write that hymn book and many fine hymns. And of course, Newton, right in Amazing Grace, that's what he is most known for. Though he wrote many other hymns, and a number of them are in your new hymnal. Cooper. Is there any reason uh, that we could doubt why his most famous hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath its flood, lose all their guilty stains. Blood meant something to him. It changed him, made him a new creature and fit for the master's service. And uh, a blessing just to know those things and to be able to stand in that town and think that your heart are two men, great men, in this same town who were used of God. And then all I had to do was just turn around the steps of the meeting house where I was viewing all of this, and I'm on the steps of the John Sutcliffe Memorial Baptist Church. You say, well, what kind of hymn writer was he? He wasn't a hymn writer, but he was a well-known Baptist preacher there in Olney in that day. At the same time that Cooper and Newton are there, why Sutcliffe is laboring. And what is his claim to fame as a Baptist preacher? He was the one who was preaching when a young man by the name of William Carey believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the father of modern missions. 
one town. Can you imagine the influence that was in that one town that literally changed the world? Amazing. And there are other places like that around the world. One of them is in Hamilton, New York. That's a place where the Hamilton Literary and Theological Institute was founded in 1818 out of the First Baptist Church. And today, that school, which was used to send many missionaries that had been trained and preachers that had been trained all around the world. But today that school is known as Colgate University. And yes, it was started by the Baptist. William Colgate was a prominent Baptist. The Colgate Company started by Baptist people. It's not just that. The Pillsbury Company was started by Baptist people. Kraft Foods, J.L. Kraft taught Sunday school in a Baptist church for over 50 years. Jesse Ball DuPont, the wife of that great business magnate DuPont, she was saved in a Baptist church and afterwards endowed many Baptist causes for the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory. John D. Rockefeller, uh, the oil man, why, he was a Baptist, faithful Baptist. His daddy was a drunkard, and he determined he'd never be that way, but the only way he could keep himself from it was to get saved, and he did. And God used him. So uh, we think of those places, and uh, Colgate, the name of the school changed because William Colgate came into town on the train one day with a check for $250,000 to help the school. And they thought, maybe we ought to change the name of the school to Colgate. And they did. And you can visit that place today. It is a, a wonderful, a wonderful place to go up behind the cafeteria, up the hill to the cemetery there on top of the hill. And there are prominent Baptist buried in that place who have been used <clears throat> across the years to glorify the Lord. Authors, educators, preachers, missionaries buried there in that place. And one of them was Theodore Perkins. Perkins, you have a song that he composed the tune for in your new hymnal. It's called Fade, Fade, Each Earthly Joy. One of the finest songs that you will ever sing. The message is absolutely amazing. It was written by Jane Bonar, the wife of Horatio Bonar from Scotland. And fade, fade each earthly joy. The words meant something. They were not just idly penned. You see, when she was a girl, she had to bury her parents. She had to bury her siblings, every one of them. She was all that was left. She married Bonar and one after one. You can look at the crypt there in Edinburgh, Scotland. I remember standing there at that place and reading the names of her children, the date of their birth. Sometimes the date of their death was the same day. Sometimes a year later. And almost every one of the children that she bore died. They all preceded her in death. You think of that. Everybody that you've ever loved, you're going to bury. And then you can write a song. Fade, fade each earthly joy. Jesus is mine. When you lose everything that you have, everyone that you love, all of your health, all of your possessions, you can still say, Jesus is mine. You'll never lose him. 
Never lose the salvation that's been given to you. And the scripture from Song of Solomon, until the day break and the shadows flee away, is how her grave marker ends. And folks, one day, the day will break, the shadows will flee away, and we'll realize that our hope has been sure all the time, that our Savior is everything and more than what we have thought him to be and know him to be. And in songs like that, Theodore Perkins wrote the tune. He is buried there in that cemetery at Colgate University, so many other Baptists. But these songs, they mean something. And we have a privilege to sing so many hymn writers. Uh, Philip Doddridge, he wrote a song called Grace Tis a Charming Sound. The Baptist missionary Eugenio Kincaid, who labored with Adoniram Judson and others in Burma, had returned to America for a furlough. He is going back to Burma, and he goes through England. He said, I'd like to stop at Spurgeon's Tabernacle and see if it's what everybody says that it is. And so he did. He said he wasn't disappointed. There were over 6,000 people in attendance to hear Spurgeon preach. And he said Spurgeon was everything he was advertised to be. He exalted the Savior and laid the sinner low. But what he was most impressed with, he said, was when that vast ocean of people stood afterwards to sing, Grace, tis a charming sound. He said he'd never forget it as long as he lived, hearing that many people sing a hymn in praise of Almighty God. It makes a difference. Saints, when people come into this meeting house, one of the things that they will be impressed with or that will depress them is your singing or lack thereof. And when we sing, it should be with our all. That's how we should sing. We should sing as if we are saved and we're on our way to heaven and we'll be there for all eternity. Sometimes we sing as if we think we're on our way to heaven, but really anticipate hell. That's the way some singing is, literally. I, can, I know I have a big mouth, but I can go into some Baptist churches and out-sing them all to do that. It shouldn't be that way. We ought to give it our all. You say, I have a horrible voice. God doesn't care whether your voice is horrible. And usually in the using of it, it gets better. And it will help others when you sing It'll help others to sing. If you give your all, others will give their all. That's just the way it works. And it should be that way. We don't have six, there's not an ocean of people here tonight. But if nobody tells us, we won't know it when we start to sing. If we're singing to the glory of God, we're singing from our heart. Singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Uh, Thomas Kelly, one of the great hymn writers from Ireland, and his songs, praise the Savior, ye who know him. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. It's absolutely one of the best songs you'll ever sing. Uh, there are many songs that talk about the Lord coming to earth. Well, that's one of the few that talks about him returning to heaven after he has been crucified, risen again, and ascended. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight, return victorious. 
every knee to him shall bow. Amazing to think of heaven bowing before Jesus, the Lamb of God, as he returns to that place after winning that great victory. Angels who know him better at that point. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, you remember there in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, where it says that he was seen of angels? How do you see a spirit? can't see a spirit. The first time angels who had desired, they inquired about salvation. The prophets had, had prophesied about it. People had taught about it. But the first time angels ever saw God, think of it, first time they ever laid eyes on him was when he was incarnate here on this earth. Whenever he took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh. Can you imagine angels? Oh, that's God. Amazing. They still didn't understand it. Didn't understand what he did. But they knew it was good. They knew it was right. And when he returned to heaven, they all had to bow before him. And folks, when we get there, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to bow before him. And we're going to see him. We're going to be in his image at that time. Songs mean something. The message, P.P. Bliss, the great Baptist songwriter who wrote, Hold the Fort. We sing the song. We sing many others. Died tragically there in Ashtabula, Ohio in a, a train wreck. And uh, the trestle collapsed and the train fell into the ravine and it caught fire. His wife was trapped. He was not. He stayed with her and perished in the flame so that she wouldn't die alone. But he had left the world already with so many great songs. He had said earlier that he had hoped that he would not be remembered. With all that he had written, he would not be remembered for writing Hold the Fort. And the monument that's erected for him in his hometown of Rome, Pennsylvania, says P.P. P. Bliss, author of Hold the Fort and other songs. <laughs> it's, am it's amazing how things happen that way. But we honor him and his memory when we sing those songs. And uh, he doesn't care now. He's, he's with the Lord. He doesn't care what song we remember him for, but God used him. So others not necessarily hymn writers, but tune composers. W.H. Doan, William Howard Doan, was the businessman from Cincinnati who wrote the tunes for many Fanny Crosby songs. We know her songs, but we think very little about those who composed the tune. Doan was one of them. Another was a man by the name of William Bradbury. Bradbury was a Baptist from Maine. And God used him to pen the music to many great songs. If I were to ask you, what song do most children that grow up in children's home learn first? What would you say? Jesus loves me. Bradbury, the Baptist from Maine, is the one who penned that tune. He composed that tune. And while we don't know who he is, God has used him to affect the lives of every one of us in this room tonight. Oh, Samuel Stennett, the Baptist preacher in England, hymn writer as well. His, his grandfather, Joseph Stennett, who was in prison for his faith there in England as a Baptist preacher, 
was a hymn writer. Some of his hymns are in your new hymnal. Samuel Stennett's hymns, his most well-known, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand, Cast a Wishful Eye. Um, we sing them, but we think little about these people whom God used to pen them. And still, uh, the great lady hymn writer there in England, Broughton, England, the day she was to be married, her fiancé drowned. She never married the rest of her life. Later, she sickened and was crippled. And for the rest of her life, she was an invalid. So what did she do? Did she lament? No. She began to write poetry. And they were set to music. And a two-volume set called Theodosia, that was her pen name, is in existence today. And her hymns have been reintroduced to a Baptist people in the hymnal before you tonight. Some of the finest words that were written out of a heart that knew pain and affliction to encourage others who uh, would experience a similar type of affliction throughout their lives. We owe it to our, our posterity, those who come after us. We owe it to them to know a little bit about our heritage, to know from whence we came, to be able to tell some of these stories. You don't have to know all of them, but if you could tell some of them, that would be thrilling for these young people, to, and it would help them to desire to learn the hymns that these people penned. And uh, it's a blessing to know them. There's so many others that we could talk about, Baptist and non-Baptist, but I will tell you about this one. And his name is Robert Robinson. Robinson was also a Baptist preacher in England. He was converted under the ministry of George Whitfield. He said he went to hear Whitfield preach, and Whitfield was preaching about the Sadducees. He said, it didn't bother me any. I believe there was a resurrection. But then Whitfield started preaching about the Pharisees. And he said, that got me because I trusted in myself and my own righteousness. He said, then Whitfield raised his hands toward heaven and with tears streaming down his face said, Oh, sinners, the wrath is to come. The wrath is to come. And Robinson said, I was dealt a blow from which I never recovered until I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. When he was saved, immediately he began to preach. Became best friends with George Whitfield until... One day he was attending a service in the established church of which he was a part, Church of England, and there was supposed to be an infant who was sickly who was going to be baptized. Now, they believe that the application of water gives grace. It regenerates. And when the minister that day did not arrive to administer baptism to that infant, the mother was beside herself because the infant was sickly. She thought, my child is going to die and will be damned in hell because he did not receive water. Robinson thought something's not right about that. And he began to examine the scriptures and he realized that the scriptures do not teach baptism for regeneration, but only for those who have already been regenerated. And so Robert Robinson became a Baptist. When he did, Whitfield broke fellowship with him immediately. He didn't want any part of the Baptist. Even though God used Whitfield to see many Baptist preachers, or those who would become Baptist preachers, converted. 
including Shubal Stearns. You have a print of him out here on the wall. But Robinson was so eloquent, so learned, that he was asked to become pastor of the Andrew Street Baptist Church there in Cambridge, England, one of the college towns. And he was so successful, God blessed his ministry so much, that for the first time ever, professors from the colleges there began to attend his preaching, the preaching of a Baptist. Many of them got saved until he is regularly preaching to over 700 people packed into that meeting house, which is still there today as a Baptist church, by the way. He was a prolific author. He wrote a two-volume set on the history of baptism. It's still the finest work that's ever been done on the subject. He also wrote a two-volume set. Both of them were printed after his death. A two-volume set called Robinson's Researches, where he is talking about the ancient Baptist. And he gives evidence and he gives names of those people and talks about them and how they embrace the same faith that you and I do as Baptists. You say, well, I've never heard any of that before. I'll never read any of the books. Maybe not, but you have been affected by Robert Robinson because you sing his hymn, which is personally my favorite hymn. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet song by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Saints, don't stop singing. It's a wonderful heritage that we have.